there's clearly a principle in that, and that the highest priority for Jesus is God's glory. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. going to get into this so I don't I want to warn you that it's going to be a little heavy this is what's happening this is the same night where Jesus gets arrested and eventually he's he's beaten and mocked part of his beard is ripped out he's taken to several different trials where ultimately the crowd shouts and requests that the sentence be crucifixion, and ultimately Jesus is crucified. He knows where he's headed. He knows this is what's coming. He knows this is the next thing. His arrest is coming. It's also the same night where him and his disciples celebrated the Passover meal. And the symbolism is not lost on Jesus. The Passover lamb was sacrificed as a reminder of the original Passover. Where the Israelites were stuck and enslaved in Egypt, and the only way that Pharaoh was going to let them out is through one final judgment of God, where God sent the angel of death through the land of Egypt, and every, for every house, the firstborn son, would die in that house. And the only way to escape death was to sacrifice a lamb and to paint the lamb's blood on the door of your house. And so if you were covered, if your house was covered by the blood of the lamb, you received life instead of death. That symbolism was not lost on Jesus. He knew he was about to pour out his blood for the world. In fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, he instituted what we call communion, and he said to his disciples as he handed out a cup of wine, Drink this. This is my blood, which is spilled out for you. He knew where he was headed. He knew where he was going. And so John 17 is in between those things. There's the Last Supper and the conversation that happened during and after the supper with his disciples and before Jesus' arrest. And what Jesus does is he finds time to pray. And so he knows where he's headed, and he spends some time alone with his father. Now, I was thinking about this. I 
I don't know that I can really connect with this on a personal level. I, I think about times in life, maybe you can help me, but times in life where you've really just been completely emptied out. You're actually almost at the finish line. You feel you've done everything you can do, but there's a little bit more left to do. And then you know your mission is accomplished. That's where Jesus is at. Now, for me, the closest I can come is there was this, there, there were several semesters like this, but there's a semester in college where this was my life. I worked full time, so I worked 40 hours a week. I was a full time student, and I was volunteering in ministry more than full time. So I was volunteering in ministry 50 to 60 hours a week. I was working 40 hours a week. I was going to school full time. And I was trying to have some sort of a social life. So this is how my days went. My day would start at around 6 a.m. when I would wake up to get ready to go to class. In between every class, I would try to do the homework for that class so that it would be done. If all my homework was done for all of the classes in between periods, what I would do is then focus on whatever I needed to do for ministry, whatever studying I needed to do for ministry. By the time I got out of class, I had to go to my shift for work. I would spend hours at work. By the time I was done at work, I would then go to the church to do something, whether that was uh, helping lead worship, playing my guitar or the drums, uh, whether that was participating in some sort of ministry like the children's ministry or the youth ministry or mentoring uh, with one of the pastors there. And I was spending a ton of time doing that. And then usually around 10 o'clock at night, by the time all that stuff was done, I would finally have some time to hang out with friends. I would get home around two to three in the morning. And then I would have to wake up at six to start the whole cycle over again. So this is how I survived during those days. I don't recommend this. I had a pile of energy drinks next to my bed because I was getting about two to three hours of sleep a night for several months which wears on you. And so the first thing I would do is crack an energy drink because I hate coffee. I can't drink coffee. I needed something to get me through. And I remember as the end of the semester was coming and I was about to get a, one, like a week break from school. And at the same time, I was going to take some vacation time from work so that I could get a break because I was completely at the end of my rope. Remember, as the last week of the semester came on, I was still working heavily and I was still serving at the church. I was driving and I completely lost it. I started sobbing and I pulled over. I tried to gather my wits together. I just started praying and I realized where I was. I was just outside of the church where I was serving. So I pulled into the, I pulled into the driveway. I just went in and I just went into the basement of the church and I just started praying as I was sobbing. I didn't know that anyone else was there, but someone happened to come by and just started praying for me. And I remember walking out of there feeling a little bit better and knowing that I could get through this last, this last week of the semester. Now, that's not all that impressive in the long run. In the time, it felt like my energy level was completely depleted. I didn't know how I was going to survive past this week. But the truth is, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that big a deal. My life now is more hectic. I have a wife. I have a toddler. I have a baby on the way. I... I'm working here as the pastor. I also, because I'm the only person on staff, I'm also the youth pastor and the administrator and the bookkeeper. And I'm doing all of this. And I can handle it 
significantly better than I handled that week in my semester. So I thought, what is a good parallel? Because I don't have a good story to parallel what Jesus is going through. So I'll, I looked this up. Maybe this is something we can connect to a little bit better, dealing with what the prayer that Jesus has here in between his arrest where he knows he's, he knows he's headed to the cross and the last lesson he taught his disciples. In between that time is this prayer. This was his love letter to his father. This is what he asked for when he knew what he was headed to. So I looked this up. I found this letter. This is a letter written by a person named Sullivan Ballou. If you've never heard of them, neither did I until this week. I wish I had. This letter is written in 1861. It's a letter from the Civil War. This is Sullivan Ballou was a Union soldier about to go into his last battle. This is the first battle of Bull Run. And before the battle starts, he writes a letter to his wife. This is the letter. This is, says, the last letter from Major Sullivan Ballou written to his wife leading up to the battle at First Bull Run. July 14th, 1861. He says, my very dear wife, indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Our movement may be one of a few days' duration and full of pleasure, and it may be one of severe conflict and death to me. Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for any country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. My dear wife, when I know that with my own joys, I lay down nearly all of yours. And replace them in this life with care and sorrows after having eaten for long years the bitter fruit of orphanage myself. I must offer it as their only sustenance to my dear little children. Is it weak or dishonorable while the banner of my purpose floats calmly and proudly in the breeze that my unbounded love for you, my darling wife and children, should struggle in fierce though useless contest with my love of country? I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night when 2,000 men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying the last, perhaps, before that of death. And I, suspicious that death is creeping behind me with his fatal dart, am communing with God, my country, and you. I have sought most closely 
and diligently and often in my breast for a wrong motive in this hazarding the happiness of those I loved, and I could not find one, a pure love of my country and of the principles I have often advocated before the people and the name of honor that I love more than I fear death, have called upon me and I have obeyed. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with my mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all those chains to the battlefield. The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come crowding over me and I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I have enjoyed them so long and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. I know I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains that I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have oftentimes been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness and struggle with all the misfortune of this world to shield you and my children from harm. But I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little freight and wait with sad patience till we meet to part no more. But, O oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the garish day and the darkest night amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. And if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me, dear. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. As for my little boys, they will grow as I have done, and never know a father's love and care. Little Willie is too young to remember me long, and my blue-eyed Edgar will keep my frolics with him among the dimmest memories of his childhood. Sarah, I have unlimited confidence in your maternal care and your development of their character. Tell my two mothers I call God's blessing upon them. Oh, Sarah, I wait for you there. Come to me and lead thither my children. Those are the last words of a soldier who knows he's about to go into battle and likely to face death. And what does he tell the people he loves the most? He writes a letter to his wife to let her know how much he loves her, how much he wishes he could be there for his children, but his duty to God supersedes it all. He's willing to lay down his life for a cause that's better than just keeping hold of what he cares about in this world. The goal and the mission is bigger than the personal wants. Now that's someone who understood what Jesus was about to tell us. When we dive into this, we get into Jesus's heart. We get to see what he's all about. We get to see his priority list as he's about to endure death on the cross. So this is what Jesus says. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, 
and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, also that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus' first words in his prayer, the first five verses of John chapter 17, are about his relationship with his Father and the glorification of God. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, that when they asked the question, how do we pray, that the first words when he said, this is how you pray, is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, that it's about the relationship you have with God and his glorification. There's clearly a principle in that, and that the highest priority for Jesus is God's glory, the glorification of God. This is what it makes me think of. It reminds me of John the Baptist's words. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, we meet John the Baptist, and there's a moment where John the Baptist's disciples are coming to him because they realize that the people coming to listen to John is a dwindling number. That people coming to get baptized by John is a dwindling number because people are starting to follow Jesus. And they're concerned about the ministry. They're concerned about John, their teacher, and they run to him and they give him the news. Don't you know that people are starting to follow him instead? And John looks at his disciples and he says to them, he must become greater, I must become less. John the Baptist's concern was never for his ministry and for him to be glorified. His entire ministry was about pointing to Jesus. And so when the moment came that his ministry was getting smaller because people were paying attention to Jesus, John was happy. His disciples didn't understand the joy that John had when people were going to Jesus, but John got it because John understood he wasn't the important person. His job was to point to the important person. He pointed to Jesus. And so in ministry, in our prayers, the glorification of God should be a priority. It should be the highest priority. Not that attention comes to me, but that God would use me to bring attention to him. It also reminds me of another of another parable Jesus told. This is very short, so I'm going to read it for you. It is the pearl of great price. Well, I'm sorry, this isn't loading, so I'm not going to read it for you. But, it's, but you can find it in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. It basically it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this great pearl. So there's this salesman or this collector of pearls, and he comes across this pearl. And when he sees it, 
He might have collected a lot. He might have had a whole lot in his life, but he sold everything he had for this one pearl. Now, what does that mean? It's this idea of the glory of God being the point of our lives. It's not, look at how comfortable my life is. Look at how much I've added to the list. Look at how nice my car is. Look at how nice my house is. Look at how beautiful my wife is. She is, by the way. But it's not what I get out of my life. And then let me add Jesus to it. It's whatever I have in my life at the time when Jesus confronts me. And when I meet him for the first time, I'm looking at that pearl. I'm looking at the thing that's more valuable than everything I've amassed in my entire life. And it doesn't matter if you're Elon Musk. You're looking at Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have couple hundred billion dollars, Jesus is worth more. And when you're looking at Jesus and you see the value that he has, it's not, can I buy that field too and add it to my possession? You can't, you can't afford it. The only way to get it is to put aside everything that you have for this one possession. And that possession is the kingdom of heaven. That possession is Jesus. That possession is a relationship with God. That's why Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will follow. Not trying to add God to our lives, but to give up everything for him and everything else will follow. It's seeing the thing that's more valuable than everything else you can amass. And Jesus, in his final words, the first thing he cares about in this prayer between his arrest and his lesson to the disciples is the glorification of God. Now, he was just teaching his disciples that he was going to leave. He was telling them and foreshadowing his death. He was having his last meal with them. He told them about the joy they were going to have. He told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how good it was that Jesus was leaving. But now he's on, he, he has a moment to himself. And he spends time speaking to the Father. And you find out what he cares about most is that God's name is made great. That God is glorified through his actions. That the glory of God is what matters most because that's what he first talks about. It's the shortest part of his prayer, but it's the first part of his prayer. It's the thing he values most. And only the rest can happen if the first part goes down. If God's glory is heightened, if God's name is made great, only the rest can happen if that happens first. And then he moves on to pray for his disciples or to pray for the believers. He says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You hear that? He's saying, he's now praying for those who believe. 
He even says it straight out. I'm not praying for the world right now. I'm praying for those who believe right now. He's praying for his disciples, those who have chosen to follow him. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. See, glory of the Father comes first. Glory of God comes first. And then through this relationship, God is also glorified. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So he prays for those who believe. He prays for those who have been given to him, his disciples, those who followed him during his life. And what he cares about is that God is glorified through them, as they already are. And he asks God to keep them and to sanctify them by the truth. And he says, your word is truth. So what do the believers have to do? What are the believers doing through Jesus' prayer? What is he asking for them to be? He's asking them for to be, to be those who glorify God. Well, Jesus had already told them a couple of chapters ago. He gave them a new commandment. He said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Saying, make God's name great by loving one another, by taking care of one another self-sacrificially, by making yourself, humbling yourself, and taking care of those around you. That's how the world will know that you know me. That's how the world will know that you know Jesus by loving others, but he also tells them to be sanctified by the truth, and God's word is truth. This reminds me, Paul writes this in a different way. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can attest to God's perfect will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying, stay close, love one another, be an example to the world around you. That's how you will glorify God. But also, stick close to the truth. Stick close to Scripture. Scripture is how you renew your mind and set yourself after a pattern of God, the way that God wishes you to behave, the way that God wants you to think. Set yourself after a pattern of reading the Scripture so that you don't conform to the patterns of this world 
that you don't buy in to the pagan ideology or the pagan ideas or legalism. Transform your mind. Be sanctified. Become more like Christ by knowing him better through his word. Now the rest of Jesus' prayer focuses on us. See, he started out by praying for the glorification of God, the glory of the Father, the glory of himself and the Father, and the glorification of the Father through himself. He cared about the glory of God. And then he cared about the people around him, the people who believed next to him. And then he prays for the people who will believe. That's us. He says, I don't pray for these alone, but also those who will believe in me through their word. So not only is he praying for the believers and for those who will believe, he's asking those who do believe to make an impact in the world around them so others will. He's praying for the Great Commission. He's praying for others to come to know who Christ is through the teaching of those who follow him. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and that the glory which you have, that you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now get that right. He's praying for all believers, not just his disciples, for everyone to be able to come to where Jesus is going. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he's inviting all those who will believe to come see him and to witness his glory that God is going to give him. Not only does he care about the glorification of God, but he cares that the church gets to witness it. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So what does he say? He prays that people will come to believe through the followers of Christ. He's praying for the Great Commission. He's praying for what Jesus told his disciples to do after the resurrection. He says, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's your job. And for all those who get baptized, that's who Jesus is praying for. And he's asking the church, the future church, to be unified. Well, now, yikes. Because, I will say this, <clears throat> Jesus, he's going to get what he wants. He's God. He will come through. But the church has done a pretty bad job of being unified. There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of different denominational styles and goals. But the truth is, what we should be doing, instead of competing with each other and arguing with each other, is coming together because... If someone gets to know the biblical Jesus, the true Jesus, the God Jesus, because of the church, then who cares if it's this one or the one next door? 
If Jesus' name is glorified in heaven, we've done our job. If Jesus' name is spread throughout the earth, we've done our job. And the church needs to do better at that. But let's look at the priorities of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus. This is his prayer. This is what he needs to say. Like the soldier who's about to go into the battlefield has last words for his family. Like that Civil War major who couldn't help but to tell his wife how much he loved her, how much he wished he could have been there for, for his children but how much the mission superseded those personal goals. Because he was there to defend freedom, and that was bigger than what he could do at home. And he was compelled to do it, so he left with last words before that battle. Jesus is in the same fight. He is fighting for freedom. He's fighting for freedom from sin and to redeem us and to give us a chance to reconcile with God, to have a relationship with God again. And as he's about to go into that last battle, for he knows what's coming. He knows it involves being arrested, being lied about, having his beard ripped out, being whipped, being spit on and mocked having nails pierced through him and him raised up as gravity crushes his lungs on a cross. He knows what's coming, and he knows that that fight is bigger than the love he has for his disciples to stay with them. That battle is more important, and the big picture is a bigger deal. More important than for him to just stay and keep teaching his disciples and be their rabbi. And so this is his prayer. And his priorities are this. First of all is God's glory. If the thing that motivates you is selfish, it's not worth it. If the thing that motivates you is to take the eyes off of yourself, ministry-wise, and put them on God, then that's a worthy ministry goal. I don't care if there's 10 people here, if there's 100 people here, if there's 1,000 people here. I don't care if there's a million people or a billion people listening online. I don't care. Because if all of that makes me a known figure, it's pointless. But if it brings people to Jesus and points people to him, then it's worth it. And it doesn't matter if it's one more person or a hundred more or a million more. If we can save any souls and bring them into the kingdom of heaven and point them to Jesus, then it's worth it. Because the first priority should be God's glory. The second priority is the believers. We need to take care of each other, to love one another, and to be an example to the world of what love really means so that they can see Jesus through how we take care of each other and how we sanctify ourselves, meaning how we continually go cr- grow closer and closer and try to be more and more like Christ 
through the truth, which is God's word, that we renew our minds and don't conform to the world. And the third thing is for those who will believe. Uh, you can look around in this room and you can see empty spaces. Maybe you could put a sign up that says reserved for a future believer. Reserved for someone who will come to faith in Christ because you invested in them. Maybe it's a reserved space on our online forum. Someone you invite to listen who comes to faith. I don't know. But I would like to think that our mission is to glorify God, to sanctify ourselves through his word, and to bring others into that knowledge, to point people to him. And so all those empty spaces, that's reserved seating for people we hope will come to believe in Christ. So as we pray for each other, and we send out those prayer requests every week, and we pray for each other and the things that are going on, please take care of each other. Please help each other. Please pray for each other. And if you can do something material, do that too. If you can bring a meal to someone in need, do that. But don't forget to pray for those who aren't here yet. Don't forget to pray for those who still need to hear the gospel. Because we want to see them come to Christ. Because Christ is that pearl. He's so valuable. He's worth everything. Getting, I would get rid of everything to have Jesus. And when he's known, when you show how real he is through God's word and the love that he really has for people, that it wasn't about him. It was about the glory of reconciling people with God. The mission is bigger than the pain he would go through because he loves you that much. When you can show people that and how it was predicted from Genesis to Revelation, hopefully they come to a knowing place where they meet him and say, that's the pearl. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Everything else will come later. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. This is holy ground we're standing on, these words of Jesus. The reformer John Knox called this the holy of holies of all scripture. I pray that we don't take it lightly, these words of Jesus, but that we learn how important it is. That we can get out of our own way. That we can become less concerned and less self-centered and more God-centered more focused on who you are, your glory, and pointing people to you. God, help us to have a mission individually and as a church that glorifies you and points people to you, not to us. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.